As I said, Sodom and Gomorrah serve as a bad example of what we shouldn't be doing. So let's uh, take a look at uh, Genesis 19. Genesis 19 tells one of the most dramatic stories in the entire Bible. Even people who don't go to church know something about how God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. It deals with sin so unspeakable that the biblical narrative omits all but a few details. It describes the wholesale destruction of, as best as we can determine, five cities and multiple thousands of people. This chapter explains why God reduced <clears throat> an otherwise idyllic valley to a salty pit of rocks and dust and a, and a sea, the Dead Sea, which is ten times saltier than the world's oceans and just nothing there can sustain life. In addition, they have heard about Lot's encounter with the angelic visitors and the strange, sad tale of Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt. As if that weren't enough, tucked away at the end of the chapter is a sordid story involving Lot and his daughters. No wonder Hollywood has made several movies based on this story. For many years, skeptics have proclaimed this story a legend or myth because no one could find the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. God did a good job. However, newer excavations at the southern end of the Dead Sea have uncovered ruins of several ancient cities that appear to have been suddenly destroyed in a devastating fire, which fits the description in chapter 19. Today I want you to know that we're <clears throat> not going to dwell so much on the immorality of Sodom as we are the lessons that we learn from the life of Abraham and Lot. God preserved these accounts of Abraham, Lot, his daughters, and their culture to help us examine ourselves and determine how we should live. You can read this chapter for yourself and its description of sinful behaviors, but I'm going to focus on what happens when we compromise with sin of any kind. As chapter 19 opens, we find Lot sitting in the gateway of, of the city. To us, that might not mean much, but to ancient readers, it meant that Lot had finally arrived. He was in the big time. <clears throat> Although he was a nephew of Abraham who grew up in rural areas, he had come to the big city and done well. In fact, to sit at the city gate meant that he had become one of the chief rulers of the city, something like a modern mayor or a trustee. The people brought their concerns to the city gate where all the leaders gathered for discussion and settling of disputes. So now Lot, the man of God, has become a leader in a city given over to moral perversion. A study of his life reveals a slow, sad, downward spiral. First, he looked at Sodom, 1310. Second, he lived near Sodom, 1312. Third, he lived in Sodom, 1412. And fourth, he ruled over Sodom, chapter 19, verse 1. We too must beware of our own downward spirals. We drift toward compromise. There's that word again. And what do we call it? We call it tolerance. We are carried along toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. If we allow that to happen, we're on a slippery slope that leads to problems. I think Lot actually meant, well, <clears throat> I don't think he ever intended to do harm to himself or his family by moving to the big city. Maybe he even hoped to do some good by mingling with the pagans who live there. Sometimes Christians must be in Sodom so that they can save Sodom. 
So there is nothing intrinsically wrong with him living in this sinful city. However, <clears throat> motivation makes all the difference. And there is something wrong if we live in the world because we love the world and all of its attractions. This seems to be the case with Lot. Hear the words of warning to us from Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where he says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing perfect will. I love the way Eugene Peters puts it in the message. Anyone read the message as a paraphrasing of the Bible? He puts it in more modern terms, gives the same advice in more modern terms, and he says, don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even, think, even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. But back to the story. The Bible tells us that two angels arrived at Sodom one evening. Because he was a gracious man and because it was the custom of the day, Lot invited the two men to spend the night in his home. He had no idea they were angels. This was simply an act of hospitality, and we've already heard in previous messages that hospitality was very important in that culture at that time. But as word spread throughout Sodom that the two men had come to visit Lot, the true character of the city becomes clear. Verses 4 and 5 tell the story so plainly that little comment is needed. Before they arrived, or before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. They shouted to Lot, Where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us. I left some of the stronger words out, but it's obvious that the men of Sodom who wanted, the men of Sodom wanted more than friendship from these two strangers. And it's from this shameful episode that we get the word sodomy and sodomites to describe both the sin and the perpetrators of immoral acts. Here are hundreds of men burning with immoral desire for two visitors to their city. In response to their demands, Lot does something even more terrible. He offers the mob his two daughters to do with as they will. But the mob would have none of it. Instead, they again demand that two men be given to them. In response, the angels pulled Lot back off the porch inside of the house and struck the crowd blind. <clears throat> At this point, Lot begins to realize who these two visitors really are. They have been sent by God to destroy the city. But first, they must give Lot and his family one last chance to escape. When Lot tells his sons-in-law about the coming judgment, they laughed, thinking he was joking. Evidently, they saw nothing in Lot's character to suggest he had that kind of relationship with God. And one might suggest that one of Lot's problems was that instead of representing God's goodness, he settled on being less evil than his peers, something that we need to guard against happening in our lives. But as the dawn breaks, the time has come for Lot, his wife, and their daughters to leave Sodom. The angels now deliver one final message. At dawn the next morning, the angels became insistent. Hurry, they said to Lot. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here. Get out right now or you will be swept away in the destruction of the city. Verse 16 adds a sad and tragic phrase. 
when Lot still hesitated. I suspect that Lot hesitated because he loved the city of Sodom. Here were his friends, his neighbors, his co-workers. Here were all the pleasures of the world. Here was the good life he and his wife so much enjoyed. Here he could indulge himself. Never mind that he himself was not an immoral person. Never mind that he personally found their behavior repulsive. He would live with that ugliness simply because he loved all that Sodom represented. Here again, the echo of Paul's warning for us. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out, readily recognize what he wants from you, and quickly respond to it. In biblical terms, Lot loved the world, as in the verse that says, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. That's found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, if you're writing it down. God's love is pure and redemptive and completely separate from evil. But the love John warns against is a love of one who loves all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons. Lot loved Sodom so much that he was nearly destroyed by it. Lot tried to be tactful, but it nearly cost him his soul. He was tactful when he should have been indignant, if not downright angry. There are occasions when it's better to be politely blunt than tactful. As a politician, he was accustomed to compromise. There's that word again. He had a smooth tongue. The rub is that this situation in Sodom called for holy indignation, not smooth words, reproof, not appeasement. Lot's weakness lay in his lack of conviction. What are convictions? Convictions are deep, firmly rooted inner principles regarding integrity, morality, ethics, and faith. A set of convictions helps us recognize good and evil and then prompts us to confront evil and choose good. The mind of God defines good and bad, and he has written down those standards in the Bible. From that book, we derive our convictions. Lot's sense of what was sinful was enough to make him uncomfortable in Sodom, but it was not enough to make Sodom intolerable. He had adjusted to it quite nicely. Otherwise, he would have left, for he certainly had had opportunity to do so. Lack of conviction kept him there. In comparison, profound conviction in God's promise kept his uncle Abraham in the promised land despite his years of disappointment and the struggles he endured. Convictions offer no space for compromise. In that city filled with perversion, Lot's sense of values had become perverted. In fact, he was so enamored with the world that he begged to be allowed to go to a nearby town instead of fleeing into the mountains, as he was advised by the angels to do. Perhaps he couldn't bear to leave the city, the evil city, or perhaps he didn't quite believe what the angels were saying. In any case, the angels agreed to let him go to a nearby town because they couldn't do anything until he and his family left Sodom. Several things now happen in quick succession. First, the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as three other cities, are destroyed in broad daylight by burning sulfur. Second, Lot's wife looked back at the destruction and became a pillar of salt. Third, the next morning, Abraham stood and surveyed the smoking ruins from afar. And fourth, 
daughters of Lot got their father to drink wine, and while he was drunk, they lay with him. This last episode is so sordid that one might wonder why the Bible includes it. However, I think there are a couple of reasons. On one level, it explains the origin of the Moabites and Ammonites, for they were the offspring of this immoral union between Lot and his daughters, and eventually became perpetual enemies of Israel. On another level, it shows how polluted Lot's family had become. Children who are, are exposed to immorality repeatedly over long periods of time begin to lose their sensitivity. Even though Sodom is destroyed, the spirit of the city is reborn in the unspeakable acts of Lot's daughters. Thus, we learn that the problem is ultimately where? In the human heart. Cities aren't evil. People are evil. Unless the heart is radically changed, you can destroy every city in the world, but the sin of any nation can be reborn in a cornfield if there is no change of heart. Here again, the echo of Romans 12, 2. Read it together with me, if you will, if it comes up on the screen. Don't, okay, ready? Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. As we stand back and look at the events recorded in Genesis 19, several questions come to mind. The central one relates to the actions of God. Why did God destroy these cities? After all, surely many other cities were also extremely sinful. Why Sodom and Gomorrah? And why now? And why in such a fiery blaze? Here's some observations. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because these cities were utterly given over to moral perversion. If there is ever any question as to how God feels about immorality, this chapter should put all questions to rest. Genesis 19 serves as an Old Testament illustration of Romans 1. Any nation or city or village that permits or encourages such flagrant immorality will come under God's judgment. Immoral behavior represents our wholesale abandonment of God's ways with respect to human sexuality. Immoral behavior is a perversion of God's plan for humankind and results in misery, sin, and death. Number two, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed as a warning to the ungodly. Jude 7, uh, Jude, uh, the book of Jude, verse 7, makes the same point. When he says, And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. God judged these wicked cities so that the ungodly will know that he does judge sin. We often speak of God's love, but we need to remember that God is a champion of justice too. Number three, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because of righteous, listen to this one, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed because the righteous failed to make a difference. This is sad. If ever good lost its ability to influence evil, it happened right there. Even though 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 7 calls Lot a righteous man who was displeased by the filthy lives of the Sodomites, he himself was so in love with the city 
that he was powerless to change it. He lost his testimony, and in so doing, he lost his family and almost lost his own life. For example, you could ask Lot a couple questions. Okay, here's one Lot. How much have you influenced the city for good? Ask yourself that question. This is embarrassing because the answer is that he didn't influence the city at all. How unfortunate is that? His own sons-in-law laughed at him. His daughters committed a sin act with him, and his wife was turned into a pillar of salt. His political power was great, but his spiritual influence was absolutely nothing. We'd also ask Lot the question, what do you have to show for your years in Sodom? What did you gain by living there? Remember, he chose a well-watered plain near Sodom because he thought it offered a good place for his flocks and herds. Lot has become a rich man through his association with Sodom. The truth is, although he may have become rich, when the city was destroyed, he lost it all. Absolutely everything. All his wealth vanished in the smoke. All his herds were utterly destroyed. His wife was destroyed. He left Sodom with nothing but the clothes on his back. And I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 36. What profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? Lot wanted to get the best of both worlds, and Jesus told us we can't do that. In so doing, he lost everything, his home, his family, his children, his career, his fortune, and his reputation. 4,000 years have passed, and Lot still represents the ultimate picture of the worldly Christian who loves the world and loses it all. Remember the echo of Romans 12, 2. Before we leave, let me offer some applications of the story for today. The seductive power of small decisions. Remember we talked about uh, choices at the beginning? Lot didn't come to be a respected official in Sodom overnight. It happened because he made the wrong choice in the beginning. Even so, Small decisions that we make today may lead to disaster tomorrow. Remember this. Every decision either leads us toward the light or deeper into the darkness. We never make a meaningless choice. Those so-called spur-of-the-moment choices sometimes have vast consequences. The deadening effect of moral compromise. Little by little, Lot became adjusted to the evils of Sodom. Like the analogy of the frog in the boiling pot, things around him changed so slowly that he became comfortable with situations that once made him very uneasy. Even so, we who live in the 21st century face that same temptation. Think about this. What appears on television and billboards today used to be considered pornography. A lot of us no longer blush at sin. A lot of sin doesn't seem so sinful anymore. Can it be that we have allowed so much immorality and filth to flow into our homes and lives that it seems almost natural to us? Have we become so accustomed to evil that we are no longer repelled by it? The certainty of God's judgment of sin. This is the primary lesson drawn from this Old Testament story. If we doubt that God will judge sin, take another look at these smoldering ruins. We shouldn't ever mistake God's patience for his approval.
We know that it is the patience of God that gives sinful people like us an opportunity to be saved. Number four, the terrible cost of living in two worlds. We can have the world or we can have God, but not both. No one can serve two masters. If we are trying to live that way, we will lose it all, just as Lot did. Many people fight their way to the top of the heap by adopting the ways of the world only to say, is that all there is? If we decide to live in the world, we will eventually look back on a burned-out life with nothing to show for our efforts but wasted years and missed opportunities. Listen to this. How desperately we need to teach these truths, especially to Christians. Many Christians feel the pull of the world, wanting to be popular and to have what everyone else has. We want to be liked by our friends at school or by our friends at work. We want the Lord and the approval of the worldly crowd as well. That's why so many of us do exactly what Lot did. Compromise, little by little, trying to have it all. We put popularity above Jesus and self above Christ. Some experiment with sin, and we think this is the way to be accepted by the crowd. Number five, the tragic cost of compromise. Not only did Lot hurt himself, his compromise ultimately destroyed the people he loved the most. I wonder if the greatest hurt in his heart that day as he watched his beloved city go up in smoke was what his compromise cost his family. Lot wrestled with his conscience and eventually succeeded in silencing it. It appears that after so many years of compromise and rationalization, his conscience had become a whisper. In much the same way our children watch us, up close and personal, to see what we value the most. They know how and when we attend church. They know what we support with our money. They also know how much we want to be liked and respected by the world. They know that we might move our family just to get a bigger home, even though we already have everything we need. Our children know what we do in our spare time. They know the shows we watch, the radio stations we listen to, and they listen to the words we say, they see, and hear it all. If we model the wrong behaviors as a result of compromise, our children could lose interest in the Bible, Sunday school, and church. Ultimately, they might resolve to get ahead in the world, win the respect of Sodom, no matter what moral restraint they have to throw overboard to do it, and eventually they'll turn away from God. And the sorrow we will carry to our grave, the deepest sorrow of our heart will be that though we still have our faith, yet because of our compromise, we have lost our children. This tragic story of Lot is taking place right here and now in the modern Sodom and Gomorrah in which we live. Remember, you have been equipped and placed by God in a location or situation where you must be proactive. Step up. Parent up. The next generation needs you. Two final points. First, things don't have to end this way for any of us. If you go back and look at Genesis 13, you'll notice how Lot chose the well-watered plains and left the rest to Abraham. Here's the question. Who really won? From the standpoint of the world, Lot won and Abraham lost. 
The clever nephew pulled a fast one on his old uncle. But now the tables are turned. As Abraham stands and surveys the smoldering ruins of Sodom, ask yourself again, who won? The answer is clear. In the end, Abraham won it all, and Lot lost it all. If we follow Lot and choose the way of the world, we will lose it all in the end. But if we follow Abraham and live by faith, though it may mean taking the lesser place in terms of worldly achievements, in the end, we will be the winner. Second, don't be fooled. If it's wrong, it's a big deal. If it's a habitual wrong, it's a bigger deal. It's time for all of us to open our eyes and examine our homes, our neighborhoods, and our nation objectively. What sins do we tolerate? What evil have we rationalized? What influence for good have we accomplished? Where have we become lax, lazy, and succumbed to the pattern of this world? Where have we turned away from Jesus, and how have we failed to make a difference for God? Remember, God is still a God of holiness. Take him seriously. We are still at the mercy of God's grace. Take him seriously. If we're compromising with sin, if we're focusing only on the love of God while ignoring his, injust, his justice, if we're lingering in places after he has urged us to get away from those contaminating influences, we're in grave danger. We need to change. I read a true statement the other day. Learn from your mistakes of others. You can... Let's start over again. I read a true statement the other day. Learn from the mistakes of others. You can't live long enough to make them all yourself. <laughs> so remember the story of Lot. If we forget his story, we will almost certainly repeat his mistakes.